If Romans chapter 8 is the chapter that pastors love to preach, Romans chapter 9 is the chapter pastors don't like to preach. Romans chapter 8 has wonderful soaring truths such as uh, God works all things for good for those who love him and uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 9 has uh, passages or statements that we would rather avoid like uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart or God hates Esau. But nevertheless, Romans chapters 9 through 11 is vitally important because it tackles perhaps the most important tension in the Christian faith. And that tension is between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Is God fully in control or does man have free will? Is God comprehensively competent or is man autonomously competent? Is God sovereign or is man free? It is an important uh, tension. Uh, as we go into this, I would have a few asks. First of all, I would ask you to allow the Bible to say what it says and not uh, force it to say what you want it to say. I was having a, an interview with one of the new members, and I asked him, what are some observations you have about Living Hope? And he said one of the things that he appreciate is that the pastors tend to preach just what the Bible says and not what simply you want to hear. And so I appreciate the fact that I don't have to worry so much about whether you're going to like the truth of the scriptures, but I can try to preach it the way that it is. The second thing that I would like to ask is that you would look at the passage in the flow of the passages around it. That chapter 9 is not a standalone, but it's in the context of 10 and 11. And though chapter 9 may uh, emphasize one aspect of the tension that we're talking about, chapter 10 actually uh, emphasizes another part of that tension. And also, I would like to ask that you would allow, uh, that you would look at chapter 9 uh, as with the flow of the passage and not get paralyzed by some of the words and phrases that may trip you up because they can feel very offensive. And lastly, I would like to ask that you allow today's message, uh, because it's so intellectual, academic, theological, and, and heady, that you would allow me to preach it without a lot of humor and cute stories about my kids and things of that nature. Uh, the passage is isn't built that way, but, but I know that because Living Hope, we happen to have a lot of honor students here, that, that you guys are like AP theology, and um, that I can preach in a heavy manner and that you'd be okay, all right? Uh, the, all the, the, uh, the, the lower, less, uh, lower class theology people, they come to third service, so, <laughs> but don't tell them that, okay? This is how the flow of the arguments will go. Uh, Paul will give attention uh, with an if and then, then statement, and then he will give an answer to it. 
But as he gives the answer, it will bring up another tension. So he will go with another if-then tension. And then as he answers that, that will bring up another tension. And so he goes on to a third if-then statement and give an answer. Okay? So there are three tensions that he's going to deal with. He's going to give an answer to each one. But he, uh, for the first two, it will bring up another problem, a tension. And so uh, he'll go to the next one. Uh, the, uh, the tension that he's going to deal with revolves around the nation of Israel. But I believe it, as he answers that tension, it will speak also to the broader question that we ask of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And so if you have not done so yet, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, it's a long Passage, so I'm not uh, going to read it, uh, but we will look at it uh, section by section. The first tension is found in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Uh, he is addressing a particular tension, and the tension is this if God called um, all and many reject, then God is incompetent. If God called all and many reject God, then God is incompetent. I'll tell you why this tension exists. He just finished Romans chapter 8 verse 30 by saying, Those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified. He had just made a strong statement on the sovereignty of God that when God calls people, they have no choice but to respond. He had just said that, but then uh, we know that God had made a promise to Abraham and his descendants would be the children of God, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. But the problem is that the majority, a vast majority of the Hebrew people have rejected the message of the gospel. They have rejected Jesus Christ. So there's this tension. If God calls and they're supposed to respond and God had supposedly made a promise to Abraham and his children and so many of them have rejected the call, then is it that uh, perhaps God is not omnipotent, comprehensively competent, but could it be that God is incompetent or impotent? That the sovereign God has called Israel, but Israel rejected, and so does that mean that God is less than omnipotent? And by the way, this, like I said, this is talking about the nation of Israel, but I believe the answer to this question answers a broader question because we know from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And if God desires all people to be saved, and we know that not all are saved, in fact, most are not saved, then what does that say about the sovereignty or the omnipotence of God? Is he less powerful than we think? So that's the tension. The answer is found in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And this may not seem like it, but the answer is God only called some. God, not, God only called some. Yes, God made a promise to Abraham that his children uh, would be, uh, his descendants will be, belong to the promise, but uh, God, God did not necessarily uh, say that that promise 
uh, revolved around or was applicable to all of the descendants of Abraham, he gives a couple of examples. He gives an example of Isaac and Ishmael in verses 7 and 8. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, so he distinguishes among the descendants of Abraham, there are um, uh, offsprings or children of the flesh and children of the promise. Just because someone is a biological descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that they are a, a child of the promise. We know that the promise was not given to uh, God, uh, Abraham's first son, Ishmael, through Hagar, but his second son, Isaac, through Sarah. The other example that he gives is that of Jacob and Esau, verses 10 through 11. Isaac had two sons, Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, and that was not good. But he also had another uh, son, a twin son, Jacob, who lied to his father for the birthright that neither uh, are good. And, you know, when we think about uh, our Sunday school lessons, the kind of impression that, that are left to us is that uh, Esau was bad and Jacob was good. That's how we kind of remember them. And that perhaps the reason why God gave his promise to uh, Jacob is because Jacob was the better brother, or the more moral brother, or the good brother. But listen to verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So before Esau sold his birthright, before uh, Jacob sought the birthright, before any of that, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of work, but because of him who calls. God called Jacob, not because he was better than Esau, but simply because God called Jacob. Verse 13, and um, it is a cringe-worthy of a verse. And, in, and if you brought your friend to church for the first time and they're like, you know, they, they're, they're unsure about church and they're here today and you are hoping that, that the preacher will say something really nice and warm and fuzzy, um, verse 13 isn't one of those verses. Paul isn't pulling something out of a hat, but he's quoting the prophet Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and uh, it is this, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What a terrible verse, all right? It's not something that you find on bumper stickers or keychains or, or framed in your wall. I feel bad if you brought a friend whose name is Esau. Commentators oftentimes try to soften the blow by saying, well, it's not really hate, but loving less. It doesn't make it any better. If your parents said to you, I love uh, you, I love you less. <laughs> doesn't make you feel any better. But it is clear this one thing that God has predestined, has chosen one uh, and rejected the other. Theologians have a word for this, it's, a phrase for this, it's called double predestination. God not only uh, called chosen one, but God 
uh, called and, and, and proactively rejected the other. You can't get any more clear than that, that God is comprehensively competent. He is omnipotent. By the way, just in case we are thinking that poor Esau, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17 kind of adds, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright. He was unholy and immoral. The bottom line is this, that God made a promise to Abraham in a general sense, but the uh, the promise was applied only to the descendants whom God has called. And so, um, in a broader sense, God uh, desires for all people to be saved, but not all are saved because uh, not all are called. This preserves the omnipotence of God, the sovereignty of God. But this brings up another tension now. Okay? If God is omnipotent and he only calls some, then the tension is this. If God called only some, then God is unfair. That's the problem. That some would say, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If God called only Jacob and not Esau, isn't God being unfair? Using a legal term, uh, the, the, the hypothetical critic is charging that God is sitting at the judgment seat. It's a, he's uh, sitting as judge, and the thing that he's legally doing is unjust by choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. To that, he answers right back, By no means, in verse 14. And then he goes to verse 15 and gives an answer uh, by saying in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, the accusation is, fairly, uh, is, is that God is unfair, but I want you to take a close look at this. Uh, the tension is, God, you're being unfair. And you would think that the answer would be, no, God is fair. Or God is just. But instead of saying that, uh, in answer to the critic, God is being unfair, the answer is, no, God is merciful. God is merciful. And this is extremely important why that particular, uh, that tension is answered with a categorically different answer. The problem is that most of us, even those in the church and even those who've been in the church a long time, uh, most of us believe, like really within our hearts, that most people are innocent. Meaning, at the end of our lives, we were to stand before the judgment seat of God. That most of us believe that most human beings, unless they're like terribly wicked, like a Hitler or uh, um, Charles Manson, that most people should be declared 
innocent. We certainly believe that of ourselves. I mean, there are wicked people who deserve to go to hell, but they're worse than us. But at least you're at least the, the last person in the passing grade. That it, we believe that we deserve to be forgiven and invited into heaven. And so the words that we oftentimes use to demand how God should treat us is that of fairness or justice. We want God to be fair. The reason why Paul does not answer back by saying that God is fair is because Paul uh, has a different foundational premise. He does not believe that mankind is fundamentally innocent, but rather mankind is fundamentally guilty. That was the whole point of Romans chapters 1 through 3. And so uh, if we were to stand before the judgment seat of God, all of us, if God were to act justly or fairly, every single person would be found guilty. A child takes a, a plate um, and in, in rage slings it, slings it at his sibling, the, jar, uh, the, the plate shatters, it cuts the face of his younger sibling. The father is upset, why did you do that? The child does not go up to dad and say, I demand fairness. Because fairness is time out. If the child demands an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, well, you know, the child doesn't really want that. The child wants what? Mercy. If God were to be fair, he would not only reject Ishmael, but he would reject Isaac. He would reject, not only reject Esau, but he would reject Jacob. But for some reason, God had mercy, also defined as compassion and pity to those who were undeserving. John Stott says it this way, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. That may seem backward to us, but it is not Paul is indicating that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice but mercy. Do you understand? And, and, and Stott makes it clear that he deals with sinners, not innocent people. Paul uses a, an example in verses 17 and 18. And it is the example of Pharaoh, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you recall the story, uh, God raises up Moses and confronts Pharaoh, who was the, 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 the chief ruler in the... Uh, Egyptian empire and it says in Exodus chapter 9 verse 12 the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh 
And so Moses keeps entreating Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no, no, no. And, and every single time a greater plague comes, and, and the power of God is displayed in all of the nation. And so we look at this particular passage, and we look at Exodus, and in some ways we say, wow, that was kind of mean of God to harden his heart. And in some way, we look at Pharaoh as an innocent person whom God uh, hardened, and now God is punishing him for being hard-hearted. But Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, in which it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that was after not the first or the second or the third, but after the sixth plague. Uh, after the first far, uh, five uh, plagues, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or he hardened his heart. We sometimes think that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and, but that he uh, inherently was a good person and an innocent person, but that's not necessarily the case. Pharaoh was not innocent, but he was guilty. But God allowed it, and he uh, urged that on, in fact, so that God can show his power all the more. Listen, the question isn't why God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but rather why God had mercy on the Hebrew people. We tend to think that Pharaoh was bad and the Hebrews were good, but if you really look at and read the book of Exodus in a different light, just kind of look at what kind of people the Hebrews were, and they were complaining from beginning to end. And at the end, and, and, uh, right before uh, they were supposed to go into the land uh, after year two, uh, the enemy so, seemed so uh, oppressive that they wanted to murder Moses and go back to the land of Egypt. Pharaoh wasn't bad, and, and um, uh, it wasn't that Pharaoh was bad and the Hebrew people were good. They were both bad. They were both guilty. The question is, why God had mercy on the Hebrew people at all? Verse 18 says, God will have mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. And that helps answer the question, uh, the tension of whether God is fair or not. God should have condemned everyone, including the Pharaoh and the Hebrews, but he chose to have mercy on some. Now, that brings up another, a third tension. If God can be merciful and God is not merciful to all, then God is unloving, is he not? If God is, or God can be merciful, then God is unloving, is he not? Uh, look at verse 19. You will say to me then, he's talking to his hypothetical critic again. He's having this imaginary debate. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If God is fully in control and I disobey, isn't it unfair that God punish me for my disobedience? If I take it a bit further, if God has the ability to be merciful and God chooses not to be merciful to everyone, then isn't the isn't it that the character of God is not a love in God? That he is in some ways inconsistent and, and mean and wrathful and angry. 
the tension attacks not the confidence of God, but the character of God. The answer is not what we expect. He does not uh, answer the question by saying, no, God is a loving God, but rather by answering in the way that God answered Job in the midst of suffering by talking about his sovereignty. No. The answer is God is loving, but rather God is sovereign. Look at verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He goes further and gives us a glimmer of the reason why God does some of the things that he does. And uh, verses 22 to 24 in the ESV or the NASB, uh, it's so confusing. So um, uh, let me read from the message version, which is Eugene Peterson's version. He paraphrases it this way, this, this little next set of sentences. If God needs one style of pottery, especially designed to show his angry displeasure, and another style carefully crafted to show his glorious goodness, isn't that all right? The sovereign God desired to show how he hated sin, but loved the sinner. And this is, that is his prerogative, to show his own glory in the way that he does. Paul quotes two prophets. The prophet Hosea says in verse 25, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And uh, her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. What doesn't seem to make sense uh, God says, I will choose you, and I will not choose you. Uh, he also uh, quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 27, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand uh, of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. God made a promise to Abraham, and God will choose to keep that promise, but only to a remnant. And in some way, in response to their rejection of God, which is confusing for us. God had already prophesied to the nation of Israel through Isaiah that all will not be saved, but only a remnant. The bottom line is this. We argue about God's love. God, uh, Paul answers back with God's sovereignty. If this all sounds confusing and I sound confusing, let me uh, quote Tim Keller. Tim Keller makes everything sound genius. If God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not see his glory. I don't think Paul is giving us much more than a hint here, but it is a very suggestive hint. For the biggest question is, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? And here Paul seems to say that God's chosen course to save some and leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme we can imagine. Now, let me um, end this section uh, by trying to paint a certain argument, and I don't know if this will make sense, uh, and hopefully I can say it in a way that makes sense. The tension that we've been talking about is the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Okay, everyone's following so far, right? Kind of nod your head, yes, yeah, yeah. Sovereignty of God and the free will of men. Some of you are going, what's going on? I don't know what's going on, okay? Um, Sovereignty of God, God is uh, totally comprehensively competent, 
or uh, the free will of man, uh, uh, man is autonomously competent. And there's, there seems to be a tension, obviously, and that's, that's why we're dealing with this. Now, add to this is the idea that God is a loving God. And so we demand God not only to be all-powerful, but all-loving, right? That's what we demand. We also demand that, that man has completely free will. And we demand God to be consistent in all three of those arenas. God, we think that you ought to be fully in control, fully loving, but give me free will. Now, here's the, here's the rub here. Now, listen with me. And it, it, it betrays uh, what we think of humanity. If God is fully loving and fully in control, then, and we have full freedom, we tend to think that all of humanity will choose what's good for them, will choose to be loved by God. Though they may be inadequate, sinful, etc., that we want to be rescued. But what if God gave complete uh, autonomy, really, uh, man to, uh, uh, to the ability to choose or reject? What if man chooses to reject the love of God? Free will demands that we can uh, receive the love of God or reject the love of God. Isn't that free will? And that's what makes human beings, uh, that portion of God's creation, unique. That we can receive or we can reject. But we've been told in the Garden of Eden, God did that. And humanity's society response is to reject the love of God. God, uh, in some way, in the subset of his sovereignty, gave Adam and Eve the ability to receive or to reject, and they rejected. Romans 1 through 3 saying, um, he is our father, our Adam and Eve, and we followed in that course. What if the free-willed man rejects the love of God, does a sovereign God, leave the free will to stand or does he force his love on every single human being? Not, you cannot reconcile all of it. And the way that Romans 9 is reconciling it is this way. God will, choo- God will choose and compel, predestine some through God's mercy and others he will allow them the destiny of their choice under his sovereignty. Some of this still doesn't make sense. And if you're sitting here today and you have um, a a theological bent, you are here saying, well, is Pastor Steve a Calvinist or Arminian? He's kind of sounding, I'm not sure, right? You have to allow the text to say what it says, and chapter 9 seems to say God is just fully in control. And um, um, this is a, like a real theological passage, a chapter. And, and, you know, it's difficult to see how this applies to our lives. But I want you to look back at how Paul begins this um, tangent three chapters. 
Paul's, Paul like heads into this heavy theological tension debate. To, and, and you think that he's having an imaginary intellectual argument. But he doesn't look at it and talk about it with a scholar's mind, but rather a grieving heart. Look at verses 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. In verse 3, it is one of the more uh, mysterious verses in all of the Bible. I've always found this particular verse uh, a little bit distressing. He's, he's talking about the, his people, the fellow Jews, his family, the people whom he shared culture, language, food, heritage, and history. And thinking about how they have rejected Christ, that they do not know the gospel, it bothers him so much, verse 3 for I could wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I don't know how to reconcile this particular truth in my mind because uh, we're kind of taught that our preeminent desire is to be with God, to know God, right? The chief end of man. And Paul is saying that I am willing to separate myself from the love of God if my family members could be saved. That is an intellectual um, dilemma for me. I, I, I don't know how to reconcile that. But listen, I want you to do this with me. Of all the people in your life, of all the people in your life, Think of, the, think of the person that you are closest to, that you care about, that you are heart vested in the most, that right now in this moment is separated from the love of Christ. That, that if they were to die today, their destiny would be apart from God. Think of that person. Paul understood the sovereignty of God more than anyone else. He wrote it. He was closer to God than at least any of us here. But as he launches into this debate about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, the thing that he says is, I'm so brokenhearted. And if I, could, if I can die, be separated, he literally is saying, if I can go to hell, so that my mom can go to heaven. If I can go to hell, so that my brother would be saved. God, would you make that happen? I'm going to ask the band to come up. But the problem is that Paul could not make that happen. The only one who could be cursed so that others can be saved is Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Christ did, not only for us, but though that person that you are thinking of. 
And perhaps as Paul, uh, and the reason why he launches into this uh, theological debate is not simply that our uh, minds would intellectually be satisfied, but our hearts would be broken and we can stand before a sovereign God pleading with God, saying, God, I don't understand this tension, this mystery, but would you call, would you elect in your divine plan, would you even through my prayer save my family member? Save these people, save uh, the nation. Would you do that? Lord, we come before you and we ask for the men and women um, in our lives or the children or family members in our lives that you would um, use the people here to to pray for them, to break for them their hearts, and that you, the Holy Spirit, will be unrelenting in that way. We thank you for having been a curse for us and that may not stop there. May you use us to save others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.